Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Shira Frankel, who covers cybersecurity for The New York Times. Previously, she spent over a decade in the Middle East as a foreign correspondent reporting for BuzzFeed, NPR, The Times of London, and McClatchy. She recently published a book with her New York Times colleague, Cecilia Kong, called An Ugly Truth, Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination. Shira, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, today on the show, I want to talk about Facebook, and then I want to talk some more about Facebook, and then we'll finish with Facebook. So I listened to it, and it was a great listen. It felt like almost every chapter started with something that Facebook shouldn't have done, them apologizing for it in a pretty hollow and transparent way. And then someone, whether it was Zuckerberg or Sandberg, blaming someone else for the fact they got bad press. So is that a pretty good indication of just how they sort of operate? (laughs) It's certainly a pattern that repeated itself throughout the book. I mean, I, I think more broadly, what we found reporting this was that over and over again, Facebook waits for something to become a huge problem that kind of blows up in a public way before they address it. And then there's a process of who's to blame, who messed it up, and inevitably it isn't the executives who make really key and fundamental decisions at this company, but something downwind. And so you see again and again, really similar problems repeating itself all over the world because Facebook hasn't dealt with some of the fundamental structural issues that it introduced when it launched the world's largest social media platform. And so now it is about 2.3 billion users. And obviously it has the Facebook, it's got Instagram, it's got WhatsApp. And so it has this enormous swath of the human population and what, like 56,000 people work there. And so it is this weird sort of 21st century pseudo nation controlled by one person. It feels like accountable to almost nobody. Well, it is accountable to really no one. And I think more importantly, Mark Zuckerberg is one of the most powerful chief executives we've ever seen in sort of modern day corporate history. He's a founder. He is the majority stockholder. He has structurally set Facebook up so that there is no one that has real oversight. And over the years, as Facebook has made some of these really sort of critical mistakes, he hasn't stepped down. He hasn't stepped back even. He's consolidated power even more and decided to directly oversee important parts of the company like policy and content moderation and the elections, for instance. So we have somebody who's more powerful than the Pope. At the height of its power, the Catholic Church did not have as many followers as Facebook currently has. And who, because of the way it's structured and because it's a private company, there just is no oversight. We all think back to, you know, 100 years ago, we had the trust busting. Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican president, was a trust buster of epic proportions, didn't like the idea of big. And then we had Microsoft, which I guess was now, what, probably 20 years ago. And it seems like efforts, whether or not it was by state's attorneys general or 
the federal government, whether or not that's Congress or the Federal Trade Commission or whoever might be, have not really figured out how to penetrate Facebook's armor from a regulatory standpoint, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, one of the problems here is that they're operating on laws that were written over 100 years ago. As you said, you know, when the government decided to go after big steel and big oil, the railroads, you know, those were monumental tasks and required legislation or required lawmakers thinking about those in a different way. But you can't take those laws and try to apply them to a company that isn't a media company. It isn't a neutral tech platform the way Facebook likes to position itself. It's something else. Lawmakers are just now beginning to grapple with what that means and whether it's the FTC or if it's members of Congress looking at regulation. They're needing to define what this company is really for the first time before they can even begin to legislate. Well, and it's interesting, too, that the chief staffer, I think, on the Senate Commerce Committee just left Congress to go join Facebook's D.C. office, which means that this is a person with a direct line to the chair, Maria Cantwell, of Washington state. And as I understand it, maybe even Senator Schumer's daughter works there. So these are people. And I mean, I was at the White House with Joel Kaplan a million years ago. Now I was a junior squirrel advance man and he was deputy chief of staff. But, you know, they also have very savvy inside operators who know how to create this bulwark of people influence everything else that sort of protects them from what we would be considered traditional oversight. I mean, Facebook, as we document in this book, has one of the largest lobbying operations in Washington, D.C. Their hiring strategy has been incredibly savvy. For years, they've hired people that have worked in Pelosi's office and Schumer's office. They have a revolving door of people who work as congressional aides, congressional spokespeople, and then come to Facebook. They know that in order to continue to do business the way they want to do business, they're going to have to accept regulation. But they want to be able to craft that legislation. They want to have a direct hand in helping decide what that regulation is going to look like. And that's what they're focused on right now. And it lets them take this PR friendly position of we welcome regulation. There's a caveat. We welcome regulation on our terms should be the rest of that sentence. Well, yeah. And I mean, you know, if you look at the Axios tip sheet every morning, you know, D.C. staple presented by Facebook and at the bottom of everything is, you know, regulation for the 21st century. Right. These guys and gals aren't stupid. And when you're backed by someone like Zuckerberg, who's as dedicated to advancing his own position as much as he is and essentially a bottomless well of money and influence, are we ever going to get the blue F out of our lives? The answer is no, but let's look at something as basic as elections and safety and security around the election and something as basic as, let's say, disenfranchising voters. Now, it's a law here in the United States that you cannot disenfranchise voters. But time and again, in almost every major election, that has happened on Facebook. Now, instead of being slammed by reporters who every single midterm election and you know presidential election find examples of voters being disenfranchised, Facebook wants the government to regulate that. They want it to create hard and fast rules that they can follow. Because then when they mess up and don't find something that isn't part of those rules, but is still disenfranchising voters, they can blame the government. They can say, well, the government didn't create the right laws for us. The government didn't create the right standards. We're just following what the government tells us to do. It knows that it moves the culpability, I should say, over to the government and away from them. And that's really what they need. I mean, Facebook thinks of this as as much of a PR problem as anything else. In my past life, I did plenty of crisis PR. And the first thing we told people when they kept getting bad press for something is, well, have you stopped doing the thing that you're getting bad press for? And normally they said, no, we're like, well, maybe you should stop doing that. On this front, though, as we talked about just when I first asked you that question, 
they continue to do it because they know all they have to do is offer the hollow apology because ultimately at this moment in time, nobody can do anything about it. I think part of the problem here is that for so long, they were focused on scaling their company, on growing as big as they could. As you mentioned at the top of the show, over 3 billion users across the family of apps. They've got over 50,000 employees. Let's say they double it. Let's say they have 100,000 employees. Do you still think 100,000 employees can really adequately monitor the content of over 3 billion people? There's no way. I mean, they grew so fast, so quickly, because they knew that was what was going to make them successful, that they sort of accepted, and the title of the book comes from this, right? They accepted that there was going to be a certain amount of damage done along the way. The ugly truth is that a certain amount of damage was going to be done in order for them to scale and go to market. And now we're all going to be living in this world, at least for the foreseeable future, where we have to accept a certain amount of hate speech, misinformation, disinformation, problematic content on this platform, because there is no way that they can catch 100% of the bad things that happen on their platform. Well, but there's a difference, don't you think, between catching 100% of the bad things, in, at least in my reading and my experience, even attempting to really care. I mean, you talk about Zuckerberg's speech at Georgetown. He's repeatedly said this, that he doesn't want to do anything to impede this kind of free expression, which is the kind of wacky libertarian tech thing that we really were all protected from before something like Facebook, right? It was a bad idea in conception, and now it's a bad idea in reality. Well, it's a Silicon Valley ethos that isn't just limited to Mark Zuckerberg. It's nearly every tech entrepreneur you speak to out here. I'm based in Northern California. I unfortunately meet a lot of tech entrepreneurs day to day. And it's an ethos they all want to mimic because it's really good business for them to have this libertarian approach. You know, he doesn't want to be calling shots. He doesn't want to have to decide if QAnon should be allowed or not allowed or what counts as a militant group. He doesn't want to decide what type of medical misinformation is banned in the middle of a pandemic. He knows that that is a very, very slippery slope towards becoming a media company. And as we document in our book from his earliest days in college, he does not want to be seen as a media company, has zero interest in that. Well, but I wish I was still growing hair, but I'm not. You can say I don't want to be a media company, but if the truth is, is that so many people, so many groups, so many media outlets see Facebook as the first and only way that they can transmit the information they want to share, there's a transformation that occurs whether or not Mark Zuckerberg wants to admit that or not. Right. And for me as a reporter, I think one of the most revelatory moments in reporting out this book was when I spoke to Facebook employees, Facebook engineers who were there at the start of the company. And they said in their own words, look, the minute we decided to launch Newsfeed and we made decisions about what you were going to see when you logged on to Facebook, we became a media company. You know, when Facebook first launched, if you were among the very first Facebook users, you might remember this, you had to navigate to someone's profile. I had to make a decision to go see what my husband or my best friend was posting on Facebook. It didn't automatically show me anything. Then about two years or so after Facebook launched, they introduced Newsfeed. They formed an algorithm that made decisions on behalf of Facebook, the company, in what order you were going to see things, what was the most important thing they were going to show you. You could argue, and, and Facebook's own employees have made this argument, that at that very moment, how did they become any different than a news organization ranking news for you? You know, it's interesting. Last May, May of 2020, we launched an ad called Morning in America, which was a takeoff of the Hal Reine 1984 Reagan ad, Morning in America, flipped on its head. and. One of Facebook's third-party fact-checkers said that the line in our spot, Donald Trump cared more about Wall Street than Main Street, was misleading, which we took a lot of exception to. And we have lots of friends that work at Facebook, and I called one of them, who's a pretty senior person, and I said, what the hell, man? 
because, you know, they flagged it. And he said, well, you know, if they've done it, we can't undo it. I said, that can't possibly be true. And he said, well, that's how it is. That's our policy. If they've flagged it, then we can't do anything about it. So I said, so what you're telling me is as we speak, there are thousands of groups, maybe hundreds of thousands of people communicating across your platform about the fact that Democrats are at the head of a baby eating conspiracy run out of pizzerias. And me saying Donald Trump cares more about Wall Street than Main Street is misleading. And he's like, hey, dude, there's nothing I can do about it. And I was incredulous. And maybe I shouldn't be, but it seemed outrageous to me. Well, now I got to ask if you called Joel Kaplan. We did not. Okay. <laughs> he probably would have told us the same thing. Well, quite the opposite, because, you know, something we've documented in our New York Times reporting and in the book as well is that Joel Kaplan has changed things on behalf of VIPs, especially, um, you know, certain figures in Donald Trump's orbit who complained about being punished for things they posted. Diamond and Silk come to mind. Their Facebook page was repeatedly flagged. And then Joel Kaplan worked to have those flags removed. And so when they want to, they have made sure that people are not punished for what they see as misinformation. Well, I mean, I would say this is that in the context of that ad, given what it did and caused Donald Trump to go crazy and attack us personally on Twitter, I mean, the president of the United States attacking us on Twitter, I'm not sure Joel would have changed his mind given their relationship with the Trump White House. But you know what, Rick, pay attention to this. Next time we get flagged, let's do something about it. We'll call Joel. So let's talk about that. So, you know, we see 2020, there's clearly misinformation, disinformation, torrents of it, rivers of it, oceans of it, just sloshing back and forth across the platform. They knew this was a problem, even going back to 2017, when Alex realizes that there had been Russian misinformation planted on the platform, that the first thing they did was get mad at him for having discovered it and told members of the board. And then they said, OK, we really want to do something about it. But the practical implication didn't change anything. We still see it to this day. Right. Well, so, you know, you have Alex Demos, Facebook's former head of security, who, as you said, finds the very earliest examples of the Russian disinformation campaign, and he begins to flag it. His team is watching as Russian hackers share Clinton emails with journalists. And not just that, they try to frame stories for the American journalists. They tell these mostly, I would say, uh, journalists from right wing publications, hey, here's some hacked Hillary Clinton emails and here's a story you can run. They even tell them when to run the stories. They go, oh, well, she's going to have a rally. So why don't you run the story tomorrow? Because then news outlets will cover it ahead of her rally. I think what's interesting here is, well, there's disinformation, which Facebook does eventually take action on. They now have a very uh, experienced disinformation hunting team, the security team, which does remove sort of efforts by Iran, Russia, China regularly. What they didn't take action on at the time and which they still struggle to take action on is misinformation. So that's, you know, Americans spreading stuff to other Americans. And that's something that they don't know what to do about because it does run against this kind of free speech ethos that Mark Zuckerberg has, but also it's very, very murky. You know, something I was just reminded of the other day was that before Facebook even found the Russian disinformation campaign, before Alex Stamos had that meeting, Facebook had a group of lawmakers from Ukraine, Georgia, Latvia, Estonia come to their offices and say, we're really worried. We've had elections. This is in 2014, 2015. We've had elections and the Russians are meddling with us constantly. They're messing with our Facebook pages. They're planting false stories. Can you help us? Can you do something? And they're given like a smile and a nod and sent on their way. And basically nothing is done. And it struck me that here we are like six or seven years later, this is still happening. The internal, especially meddling, is still happening in countries like Ukraine and Georgia. You often have citizens of that own country meddling with their elections. Like none of this has been solved years later. 
several elections later, and no one has strategized or come up with a real policy on what they can do about it. Well, again, you have to first want to solve the problem, I guess, right? Well, yes. And I think, you know, we have a chapter in our book where Yael Eisenstadt, former CIA officer, she goes to work at Facebook. She comes up with some ideas for what they can do. I, I think the bigger issue here is that there has been distrust between Facebook and the U.S. government going back a long time. But even after what happened in 2016, there hasn't been this moment where they've come together and said, can we figure it out? Can we figure out we as the U.S. government going to create laws for you to follow as a social media company for what someone can say during an election? If you tell someone the wrong place to vote or if you make them think that they can vote on a day that they cannot vote on, are we going to penalize you, Facebook, if you allow that information to exist on your platform? We're going to fine you a million dollars for every piece of voter misinformation that appears. We haven't seen that kind of effort being made. And as someone who is probably at this moment running ads on Facebook, when I buy television time, to your point about being a media platform, we do what's called an ad fax, right? We have to have citations for the things that we put in the ads. And even when we have those, sometimes they won't run it because they don't want to run afoul of one rule or another. But Zuckerberg and Sandberg said, well, it's up to people to decide what's right and what's wrong, which seems totally antithetical to the idea that I can have this much power, this much sway, this much scope. It's up to you. Right. You know, you have to think of who Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg are as people. They still like to think and they even tell people close to them, well, you know, the truth will win out. The correct speech or the accurate thing, that's going to rise to the top. People are going to share that. It's interesting because if you're a person who's spent any amount of time online, you know that that's really not the case, sadly. You know, I, I think we've all seen the worst piece of misinformation or the most sensational headline. I write for The New York Times. I regularly see versions of an article I've written with a more sensational, outrageous and usually false headline going way more viral than the calm and placid headline that we gave it at The New York Times. And that's just, you know, I see that regularly. But Mark Zuckerberg is a fairly sheltered person. He grew up in an upper middle class family in upstate New York. He goes to the United States most elite boarding school for high school and then he's off to Harvard. I just don't think he's a person that spent much time in different parts of the world. I don't think he has placed himself in a place in life where he really thinks about how bad actors are going to operate or how the part of the world that isn't Ivy League educated and thinks the way he thinks operates. And so I think a lot of his decisions are made from that place. The way you describe both he and Sandberg, though, I mean, they're either incredibly naive or I mean, didn't Mark Twain say like a lie travels around the world before the truth gets out of bed or something? I know I'm mangling that quote, but it has the advantage of being true. They are idealists and idealism in Silicon Valley has led to some of the most dangerous products out there. They are also sort of interestingly homogeneous idealists. The group of people they surround themselves with, if you look at the C-suite at Facebook, it's all pretty uniformly the same type of person with the same type of background and education, and they're very like-minded in the way they think. I should note that most Silicon Valley tech companies look just like this. They think and they like to imagine that technology can solve the world's problems because thinking that way has made them some of the world's wealthiest people. You know, I'm reminded of something that a Facebook employee told me. This is someone who'd been at the company for almost since its start. And he said, it's very, very hard to imagine that the thing you've spent your entire life doing and which has made you a billionaire is morally wrong. Once you've positioned your compass in that way, that you are making the world a better place and that connecting the world is a noble mission, it is very, very hard to reposition that. It would require an immense amount of soul searching, which does not seem to be happening either at Facebook or really, I would say, any other Silicon Valley company. 
Right. Well, look, as someone who spent his life in Republican politics, you know, and left the party in 2016, soul searching is a valuable way to spend your time. And if you believe yourself to be on the wrong track, you should find the right track to get on. But that's for another show, Shira. So let me ask you this. So let's look forward to 2022, 2024. Do you think they'll take any more action on misinformation, disinformation as we're headed to, you know, elections in the next 14 months? Do you think that they'll bring Trump back to the platform if he chooses to run again? Do you think that they will do anything in the best interests of the country? It seems like they're a heck of a lot more scared of the conservative media outlet than they are of the liberal media outlet. Right. On the last point, yes, everyone we've spoken to says they're more concerned about the conservative media outlet. On the question of whether they will put country over company, all I can say is that one of Mark Zuckerberg's earliest rallying cries was company over country. And I remember when we fact checked the book with Facebook, because we did actually fact check every part of this book with Facebook. They said to us, he doesn't say that anymore. That's not something he says in meetings anymore. <laughs> they never said it wasn't something he believed. And people who worked for the company as late as last year told us it's still very much something they feel Mark Zuckerberg and other believe, which is company over country. And then in terms of Trump, you know, I think it's a great question. It's a huge question because they've kind of tried to kick the decision to the oversight board, the oversight board, which is their version of the Supreme Court. It rules on all their decisions. They kick it back to Facebook and they say, well, you haven't made policies on why you removed Trump. And so until you give us a policy about why you took him off the platform, we can't tell you whether or not you should let him back on or what you should do. And this is all very, very conveniently timed to expire just ahead of the midterm elections. So I think Facebook has left themselves once again in an ideal situation where they're probably waiting to see how likely he is to run for office again, what his numbers are looking like, how strong his support is within the Republican Party. I mean, they they are ultimately a business. They're thinking about themselves as a business. If it looks like he's going to run for office again and maybe even win, they're not going to isolate the next president of the United States. It's just bad business for them. And I would say one other thing, which is between now and 2022, there are a number of countries all over the world that are having incredibly critical elections. I'm thinking of Hungary, Germany, the Philippines, Brazil. These are countries with authoritarian leaders who have modeled themselves on using Facebook the way that Trump used Facebook. And they don't have the luxury of time for Facebook to make up its mind. They're asking Facebook for a decision now. Are you going to allow Bolsonaro to spread misinformation ahead of the elections in Brazil? Are you going to allow the current president of Hungary, who has spouted a number of anti-Semitic and problematic things on Facebook, to continue to do so? Those countries need a decision immediately. They can't wait for Facebook to come to yet another decision about Trump. And because it's happening in other parts of the world, Facebook can kind of kick that can down the road again. Right. There's a lot of can kicking in this whole deal. The problem is the can is the world <laughs> and democracy, and they don't seem to care about kicking. Let me ask you, one, just to go back to one thing you said about Zuckerberg and company over country, maybe let me expand this out to all of Silicon Valley. Do many of these people understand that but for the fact that the United States created the internet and but for the fact that they chose to do this here with all of the freedom and opportunity to do these things, they would not exist. And that if they were in Russia or if they were in Hungary or if they were in Poland or if they were in Burma, they'd probably be sitting in a jail cell right now. Again, I just have to answer by going back to what we know about them as people, which is that they grew up in very privileged upbringings. And even when confronted by opposition members from the government in Russia, by members of parliament in Eastern European countries who are fighting for their lives, by activists in Myanmar who are telling them 
we're heading down a bad path. There's going to be a genocide. Facebook doesn't hear it. Their imagination doesn't seem to be able to conceive of all the bad things that their platform is doing in other parts of the world, let alone here in the United States. So a couple of things I saw uh, was a few weeks back. Zuckerberg was on CBS this morning about this new product they have where it basically lets you sit virtually in a conference room so that you don't have to do Zoom like you and I are doing right now. I cannot imagine a situation where, whether it was my own organization or a company, I would ever literally let Facebook have a front row seat to what it is we were discussing and how we were discussing it. And then let me ask you this. I mean, CBS, a mainstream media outlet, you know, how hard did Facebook have to work to get the wet kiss of a morning show reveal? Facebook has always had certain reporters and certain media outlets that it goes to for these kinds of interviews. I will say that it was uh, interesting to me. You know, our book came out. It was a very damning account of what happened at Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg did not speak to us for the book. And even after it hit the New York Times bestseller list and privately a number of Facebook executives messaged us to say that they loved the book and they thought it was a very accurate account, Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg haven't addressed any part of it. I just want to note here for a minute, of the 400 people we spoke to for the book, the vast majority still work at Facebook. This book is Facebook's own employees telling its executives, there are problems here. We're speaking to reporters about them because you guys are not fixing them. You're not making it better. And Mark Zuckerberg's reaction to all this, the first interview he gives after our book comes out, is to go and talk about the metaverse and how Facebook wants to create a whole alternate universe that you spend all of your time on. I mean, this is what they're focused on, the alternate reality sunglasses, the software you can use to have work meetings, the metaverse. This is what he spends his time thinking about and what Facebook hopes to launch to distract you from all the problems that exist on the platform. I mean, the metaverse thing is literally the plot to Ready Player One. Yeah, pretty much. Right, where the kid spends his entire life in this fantasy world because he lives in a trailer eight stories up in Oklahoma City or whatever, right? Like, it could not be more dystopian I mean, we've seen it in fiction, how dystopian it is. So it's like life imitating art. It's incredibly disturbing. I had a guy, fairly senior manager at Facebook, call me up the day Mark Zuckerberg gave that interview. And he, I'm not going to curse, but he said like, you know, how the F did Mark go do this interview talking about the metaverse before he talked about solving all the problems we've already introduced? Right. Well, and that's the whole ballgame because to him, no one holds him to account. And Rather than addressing that, he says, how do I bring people more into the unreality that is this platform? Now, let me turn to medicine a little bit. I mean, we're still in the throes of a pandemic. In some places, it's raging worse than it ever has. If you had to find the opinion of a Facebook employee about the idea of horse dewormer being pushed as a legitimate treatment for COVID-19 across their platform, I mean, do some of these people just shake their heads and go, I can't believe we'd let this happen every day? They do, but then you also have people who say, why should we take it down? Don't people have a right to post what they want to post? If someone wants to argue that ivermectin, this horse dewormer, is a treatment for COVID, why should we be the ones to decide to take it down? And you have those debates happening inside Facebook every day. So let me ask you this. Do you get the sense that people who are on Facebook like the company? I was fascinated how much money and time Facebook seems to spend on polling Zuckerberg individually, what his image is. I mean, I'll just tell you this as an aside. Every time I see him, a picture of him now, and he doesn't look like Jesse Eisenberg from The Social Network, it still throws me off, <laughs> right? Like, that's what I think he should look like. <laughs> it's not a bad likeness. You know, Facebook has answers to that because Facebook polls its own users on whether or not they think Facebook is good for the world or cares about its users. 
And those numbers have been extremely low since roughly 2018, when the New York Times reported on Cambridge Analytica, and then our original article about Russian election interference came out, was sort of a back-to-back hit against Facebook's reputation, which they have not recovered from. And so, no, people who use Facebook do not think overwhelmingly that Facebook cares about its own users or is good for the world. However, it's the world's largest social media company. It is, for many people, the only way they can connect to their family and friends. And because they span Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook, and they have now bridged all those messaging platforms, they've left many people all over the world in a situation where they really have no other choice but to use their products. We used to call that a monopoly, right? Well, yeah, there is that argument. And I think it's one that obviously lawmakers are looking at very closely right now, especially the way that Facebook made some really strategic product decisions early on to push out Snapchat and other competitors, which were kind of, you know, at one point biting at their heels and gaining a lot of followers. And now we've seen Facebook try to replicate TikTok and other apps that are popular with young people because they're terrified that another social media will come along and bump them out of that rank of the world's largest social media company. Well, they just don't want to be the next MySpace or Friendster, I guess, right? Right. He knows that. He lived that history. He was the one that had to bump those companies down. And so he is always looking around over his shoulder to make sure there is no young upstart company that's emerging that's going to unseat him. Do you think in the United States there is a leveling off of the growth of Facebook? And do they care about the number of users so long as the advertising dollars keep rolling in? They care about the number of users because they know eventually it's going to hurt them. And ultimately, advertisers will pay more for U.S. users than they will for users in other parts of the world. So American users are critically important. There's a leveling off of uh, definitely on the main app on the Facebook. They call it the blue app. Young people just aren't using it. But they're still using Instagram and they're still using WhatsApp. And so one way or another, Facebook has their tentacles into you, whether or not you're on the Facebook main app or not. And their growth in other parts of the world is still astronomic. How is it that Facebook can track users on the internet who are not Facebook users? Cookies. They're called cookies. They exist on different websites. And essentially, once Facebook has your, imagine it like a fingerprint. So you've given them your fingerprint when you've logged on, when you visited them. When you go anywhere else on the internet, your fingerprint's there. It touches every website. What's interesting and kind of amazing about Facebook is that they don't just care about your fingerprints. It's like they've looked at your front door of your house, your dining room table, and they see all your friends' fingerprints. And everyone who's ever visited you, they see their fingerprints. And then they're watching where they go. And their systems are so complex that they can predict. They can say, oh, well, you know, Shira Frankel has 10 friends that have gone to Hawaii in the last year and a half. So she's really likely to want to go to Hawaii. And so let's try to sell her on a dress. Let's try to sell her on a ticket. Let's try to sell her on a pair of flip-flops. This is the real machinery behind them is this predictive ability based on what they see your friends doing, patterns of behavior, your age, your wealth. They try to figure out exactly what you're going to want to buy next and sell it to you. How much danger do you believe there are to American citizens with a private company holding this much information on individuals? Look, it's obviously it's dangerous, but I will say that of all the companies out there, Facebook has invested a lot in security because this is proprietary information they want to safeguard because if that data got out in the way it did with Cambridge Analytica, I think they're as worried about competitors getting it as anything else, right? Like they don't want someone else getting all that data and then using it to do what they do. So they are trying to guard it. However, you know, I've been in cybersecurity long enough to be able to tell you that hacks always happen. It's inevitable. There's always a mistake. There's always some user error that leads to data getting out. So it's inevitable. But, you know, really, like at this point, whatever you're using, Amazon, Google, Facebook, they all have your data. 
I think that Americans, unfortunately, to get used to the idea that they have kind of decided, they've already made their bargain with the devil that in exchange for all these great free products we get, we're willing to give up our data. We're willing to give up a lot of personal information about ourselves. So, Shira, let me ask you this. Where do you see Facebook headed in the next 5, 10, 20 years? Is there an administration? Is there a Congress? Is there a federal agency? Is there a state that finally reins it in? If they do, will Facebook move overseas to find some freer place to operate? Do they move to the Cayman Islands where they can do whatever it is they want to do? How do you see the next couple of decades rolling out for them? I mean, at least in the immediate future, I don't see them moving to the Cayman Islands or anywhere else. You know, I think I'm going to quote my co-author, Cecilia Kong, because she's based out in Washington and knows the regulatory landscape better than anyone else. She thinks there's more energy among both Republicans and Democrats right now to see some kind of legislation pass. And so, you know, the way she's described it is that it's inevitable. It's coming. It's a question of what it looks like. I think Facebook's biggest danger right now is really overseas. We've seen a number of countries, including Germany, enact really strict laws forcing Facebook to remove hate speech on the platform. And I think other countries are looking at laws like that that are going to force Facebook to take action. And so it's going to be an interesting decade. I think this time of Facebook kind of managing to slide under the wire and do what it wants and not receive much punishment or regulatory action, I think those days are over. And Facebook is now in a position of trying to mitigate what that regulation is going to look like. Well, let's hope that the regulation is swift and I believe absolutely necessary. Look, if I didn't have to advertise on Facebook, like I never would. Unfortunately, as you put it, you know, that's where everybody is. So, well, listen, Shira, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can our listeners find you online? Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shira F. And you can find my work weekly at The New York Times. And our book is out there on all the platforms. I suggest you support your local independent bookstore and buy it there. All right. So again, Shira Frankel of The New York Times and her colleague, Cecilia Kong, their book is The Ugly Truth inside Facebook's battle for domination. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. And for everybody else out there, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, Follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.